Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Boston Sanctuary since 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the Boston metropolitan area and beyond. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. We're located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets in downtown Boston, Massachusetts. Arlington Street Church gathered in love and service for justice and peace. I'd like to begin with a short poem from the 13th and 14th century German philosopher and mystic Meister Eckhart. He wrote, Apprehend God in all things, for God is in all things. Every single creature is full of God and is a book about God. Every creature is a word of God. If I spent enough time with the tiniest creature, even a caterpillar, he wrote, I would never have to prepare a sermon. (laughs) So full of God is every creature. I have been thinking about the wide range of theological beliefs that are held by you who attend church here. That is just as it should be, of course in a creedless, dogma-free, Unitarian Universalist congregation. Some of you, I know because you have told me, are humanists, atheists or agnostics, Buddhists too, folks who might prefer to stay away from the G word. Others, quite a few of you, well over a majority from what Reverend Kim has told me about the congregation, are ex-Catholics. And so the G word probably carries some considerable baggage, I imagine. I say the G word because once when I preached in my home congregation in California while I was in seminary, I used the word God there in that sermon, and one of the elders came up to me afterwards marveling, you used the G word, as if it were daring to do so in a Unitarian Universalist congregation. So today I want to offer you what I mean when I use that word, as I do occasionally. Although I always do so with great trepidation, being keenly aware of that baggage. When I was a young child growing up Unitarian Universalist, my parents told me that there was no such thing as God. And I felt deprived because all my friends were taught to believe in God, similar to my belief when I was a young person in Santa Claus, the Tooth Fairy, and the Easter Bunny, all of which my family did embrace, but not God. And so I thought I was missing out on something fun, interesting, maybe even important. But we were atheists, you see. That's what I was taught. And so I complied. And for example, when we said pledge to the flag at school, My practice was not to speak the words under God. As a young child, I tried my best to follow my parents' instructions. And if they were atheists, well, then I guess so was I. Even if I didn't quite understand what it all meant, really, that was my childish faith. A little later in my childhood, I became aware of how pervasive ideas about God are in our world. And so I continued to think about this notion of something that people call God, This God I was forbidden to believe in. 
even though we were free thinking you use. Do you see the paradox? After I learned about death, that of those I loved, as well as my own mortality, no fair, I thought. My friends got to believe in something that felt like it might be comforting in the face of the oblivion, the nothingness that death promised me. But what I understood that my friends were taught and what they said they believed actually didn't make a lot of sense to me. It seemed simply imaginary. Some guy in the clouds? So I suppose I was a curious agnostic for years. And then, by the time that I had become an active lay leader in the Pacific Central District of the Unitarian Universalist Association in the 1990s, I learned that ministers that I had come to admire very much were spending their sabbaticals studying process theology, something they called process theology. What is that, I wondered. Then when I was thinking about seminary, I visited the theology class taught by the Reverend Dr. Rebecca Parker, president of Star King School, one of our two Unitarian Universalist seminaries, my alma mater. And what out of all possible theological subjects was she discussing that day? Process theology and the primacy of joy in our lives, the coincidence of which, looking back, is more than a little astounding to me. It was one of many messages from the cosmos that I realized I was receiving about the direction of my life, including one very memorably delivered to me personally by a Chicago billboard, which some of you have heard about already. Ask me if you're curious and you didn't hear that story. Later, to use the language of the granddaddy of process theology, mathematician Alfred North Whitehead, I learned that I was prehending prehending, term of art, prehending these messages. And it amazed me to learn there in Dr. Parker's class that day that that's exactly the image of God offered to us by process theology, a power that is the source of messages from the cosmos, luring us toward the good, the beautiful, the new and different, the adventurous and satisfying, the true and the just, hoping we will co-create a world in keeping with that vision. These messages are propositions, another term of art in process theology, propositions that have luring power for us because of the feelings they evoke in us, feelings being important messages that well up within us, a gift, if you will, a gift of our lives. God's primordial nature suggests to us this joy, love, beauty, justice, aesthetics, profound satisfaction. The absence of these things creates yearnings in us, yearnings to be resolved in our future thoughts and actions, just as we long to resolve a seventh chord. Molly, would you play a seventh? Just as we long to resolve that seventh chord into a tonic. Just as we long to eat when we're hungry, just as our anger compels our attention, just as birds must sing for joy, the scientists tell us. I began to grasp glimmerings of a concept of God that finally, after all those years of struggling inside myself about it, finally it made sense to me. Unlike that image of the big guy in the sky that I had wanted to believe in as a child, occupying heaven, wherever that might be, like Santa at the North Pole. What's better, 
Not only did it make sense, it made my heart sing. Octavia Butler wrote in her very interesting science fiction novel, Parable of the Sower, these words. As, wa as wind, as water, as fire, as life, God is both creative and destructive, demanding and yielding, sculptor and clay. God is infinite potential. God is change. Another quotation from Butler, same novel. Create no images of God, except the images that God has provided. They are everywhere, in everything. God is change, seed to tree, tree to forest, rain to river, river to sea, grubs to bees, bees to swarm, from one many, from many one, forever uniting, growing, dissolving, forever changing. The universe is God's self-portrait. Process theology offers us a profoundly powerful way to look at who we really are and why we're here to redefine all theological concepts from sin, salvation, and redemption to the life of Jesus and other prophets and the Trinity and the point of the religious community. Its believability or compellingness for me is strengthened by its consistency with scientific discoveries about quantum physics and human perception and also with its expression in the arts, which take on heightened consequence. In process thought, the arts are as essential to life as food and water. Novelty, creativity, and joy are part of the essential point of life. We think that we are each something substantive, living in the flow of time. Touch your own hand, your own face, and think about this. We think this solidity is such a given that it goes without saying, and maybe there's something wrong with us if we doubt it. We think we're born alone and we'll die alone and that's it. We talk about our boundaries and needing our space. And then based on this concept of substantive separate individuality, we insist on our individual ego-centered rights. We sometimes feel lonely, separate, and alone. Sometimes we do need to be alone to thrive, but that's not the whole truth. Deprived of a larger vision, we fail to understand and take our place in the bigger truth. Our Unitarian Universalist principles affirm the inherent worth and dignity of every individual. And this is usually taken to confirm separateness, uniqueness, and the primacy of each individual. But the philosophy of Alfred North Whitehead that was presented early in the 20th century which has been expanded by subs subsequent writers, thinkers, scientists, and artists into a systematic theology, suggests the primacy of the interdependent web. It says we are all part of an inseparable wholeness and an unfolding process of ongoing change. Our individuality does still matter, of course, but in the context of relationality, connection, and responsibility together for ongoing creation. Whitehead says, and scientists do too, that we are energy-based events, not solid, enduring things. Entities, in Whiteheadian language, aren't stuff, but rather processes, momentary events in time. He begins with a concept of actual entity, another term of art 
An actual entity is not a person or an animal or an ongoing solid thing. It is an event, an event that happens at the microscopic level as a momentary blip, a process, an experience. Here it comes, here it comes, it's coming, coming, coming. In a split second, it concresses, concresses, another term of art, and it is just for a moment, and then it perishes, and it's gone, done, past. As each entity is in the process of becoming, it prehends what it can from all that's available to be received, to be felt, and all that it's capable of perceiving, of feeling, of understanding. There are lures available all around us, suggestions made about our becomings, which we can try to take in, which is a positive prehension, or which we can actively reject, which is a negative prehension. And each moment builds on all the past, as much of it as we can possibly take in. Everything, everything is in the process of becoming. Even rocks which hum, listen to the humming of everything. Unitarian Universalist minister Reverend Lynn Unger wrote, listen, every molecule is humming its particular pitch. Of course, you are a symphony. Whose tune do you think the planets are singing as they dance, she writes. The moment of becoming, of concrescence, is also the moment of perishing. No sooner does it happen than it's past and gone. It's all, always, everything, always, beginnings and endings, all of it, constantly. So there's inherent grief in every moment as we let it go into the past. But hope is in the coming of the next moment and the fact that each perishing opens space for new becomings, new creativity, and transformation. And perished entities aren't really gone forever, Whitehead says, but rather they are held in objective immortality, held in God. In that way, they're made available to all of us to guide our future becomings. Everything that ever was is objectively immortal. All those past concrescences are either cautionary tales or inspiration. So I think there are a number of important implications of this worldview. One is that everything is literally connected to everything else. Everything is relational. Everything's in a surge of becoming, everything constantly in transformation. The smallest change has the potential to make all the difference. We are all becoming. In this very moment, we are all plugged into the air and through the air to each other. Molecules go into me and out and now into you and out and so on. We are all ultimately stardust connected to each other and everything. We and all living, choosing events are co-creators, not just of our own little lives, but of all creation. So the critical question, or one of them, it seems to me, should we choose to accept our mission, is what is it moment to moment, today, tomorrow, next week, next year, 
that demands our help? What is it that awaits unfolding? What is our calling and why? What is it that we want to assure is our legacy? Our choices matter profoundly for everything else in the world, now and to come. We can turn our heads, or we can and do often choose love, mercy, generosity, and compassion. The way that some process theologians put this is that by our becomings, we ourselves participate in God's own becoming. We are helping to create God. We are part of God's way of making the wonders of creation to happen. God takes in all the concrete events, everything and everyone that ever was, and holds it all tenderly. Part of God's ineffability, God's mystery, God's infinity, God's omniscience, is that nothing else, certainly none of us, is able to hold it all as God does. All crime, all good deeds, all tragedy, all beauty, all mercy and compassion, all horror, all love, all history, all dreams. It all becomes God's consequent nature, that reservoir of all that has ever been. And in some significant ways, that limits what may become. That's why it matters what we choose. It will always be true that slavery and the Holocaust happened. It will always be true that some of us may have been abused or abusers. It will always be true that some have lived with oppression and some have been privileged oppressors. The point is, then knowing that, then what? Our choice. It will always be so that the suffering in New Orleans following Hurricane Katrina happened. That experience is now objectively immortal, available for all of us to prehend and hopefully to learn from it and to choose better in the future. The people who suffered and who died will always be tenderly held in objective immortality in God. Similarly, that will always be true of Gandhi and Jesus and Buddha, the Japanese in Manzanar, the victims in Darfur. It will always be true that all of them lived, breathed, walked, talked, and taught. And now their contributions are all a part of God's consequent nature. And so are our lives, mine and yours. They too are part of the objectively immortal, tenderly held in the heart of God, undergirding that which comes later. We contribute to the unfolding of creation with our every action, our every breath. What an awesome responsibility it is to be alive. How we become determines what we become. Our being is constituted by our becoming, Whitehead wrote. This has direct implications for how we choose to spend our time and our resources and how we treat each other. It matters for eternity. To bring it right home, how this congregation becomes determines what it becomes.
too, is in process. Whitehead offers us a concept of width. Width and narrowness have to do with how much or how little an entity can take in as a part of the process of becoming. How informed by the past, how sensitive to the range of feelings in the world. Taking a narrow view of the past limits the possibilities for becoming. So for example, a pulpit pretty much always becomes pulpit in the next moment. And a company's determination that profit means everything limits other goodness it could create in the world. The more we can take in from past becomings in guiding our decisions toward our futures, the closer we can come to approximating God's infinite knowledge. The concept of God is the holder of it all. Combining width with attention to God's lures, God's suggestions, and paying attention to our own deepest yearnings and creative instincts helps us with our every thought and breath and word and act to move the future towards something that looks less wretched and more like divine. We can choose that. Nothing is predestined. God does not control the future. In fact, God eagerly awaits our choices, hoping, offering us lures and suggestions. And God weeps when children tragically suffer and die. If you don't like the word God because of all that baggage or for whatever other reason, then use something else, maybe spirit of life. We sing that song often here, spirit of life. It is that which nourishes, that which loves, that which heals. There is this power in our world. It puts the seasons in the right order. It brings young ones to life. It fixes our broken bones and our broken hearts. We have the choice to support that power or to impede it. We have the choice to help fix each other's brokenness to go beyond the boundaries of our misleading egos, our separateness, to help someone else. Even just to listen and to care helps. And when evil happens, we can choose to aid healing. We can choose mercy. We can choose reconciliation. We can choose the way of the spirit and overturn the heartless money changers tables. Even in the face of disasters such as Hurricane Katrina, even in the face of 9-11's attacks, even in the face of evils that are unspeakable, such as warfare based on lies and entrenched racism and homophobia and so on, both individually and collectively, we have the power to say no. And by so doing, we make real our faith, our vision, our collective will, to choose the better way, God's way. Through the power of our religious community, we can and must incarnate love, justice, radical hospitality, maximally open hearts, because in the other direction lies evil and the death of promise and of potential. Yes, we are all human. We make mistakes. And sometimes in our brokenness or our misguidedness or ignorance, we serve evil instead of goodness. And that is why we need each other 
to help hold ourselves to a better way, to make course corrections, and to be accountable to a bigger vision with oceans of mercy and infinite compassion. One of my favorite hymns in the UUA's newer Teal Hymnal asks, oh, so poignantly, when I am troubled, will you listen to me? When I am lonely, will you be my friend? When I am angry, will you still embrace me? When I'm thoughtless, will you understand? It helps us all to sing beautifully to each other that when you show me tender compassion, I may learn to care as you do. When you show him acceptance, he'll learn to give as you do. When you show her commitment, she'll learn to love as you do. We can choose this way as individuals and also as a community that's part of a larger community. This is creation unfolding beautifully. This is making the ideal real. This is doing God's work, and we are capable. Our hands are God's hands. There are no others. In this way, living mindful of and truly owning our precious lives of presence, wisdom, and power, we can not only pray as some do, thy kingdom come, we can help to assure that our world does, at the least, move in the direction of sustainable well-being for all life on Earth. So may it be, that and no less.